Good morning. My name is Joe Slaughter, and the passage that I'm going to be reading from this morning comes from the sixth book of the New Testament, Romans, chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. That's on page 1201 in your Pew Bibles. Romans was a letter that was written by one of the early figures of the first century church, Paul, to the followers of Christ in first century Rome. So join me in Romans 8:14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Thanks be to God. So, Bob and Nate, why don't y'all just come up here? You've got to come up higher so people in the back can see you. You know, I just, I just didn't know you were fashionistas. You know, for so long, you have given Floyd a hard time. And so Floyd brought his jackets for you to wear. What's the lesson? That we love him. And don't mess with Floyd. And don't mess with Floyd. You remember he was a World War II pilot, right? So, appreciate it. How long are y'all going to stay up here like this? <laughs> mm. Bless you, Floyd. Regardless of Nate and... Uh, Bob, the Holy Spirit is doing something beautiful here. I wrote that line before I saw that, so it's really hard to transition. But I really do believe that, you know, as I have prayed for renewal for our church, as you, ha- many of you have been praying for renewal in our church, I think one of the things that I am most surprised by is that he didn't really start with you. You know, I thought that how you get renewal in a church is you, the preacher preaches and then the people awaken, kind of like a, uh, a Jonathan Edwards experience. In reality, it's more started with me than it has with you, but I do believe it's also uh, catching on with you by the stories in which you are willing to share with me. Uh, Someone uh, said, and this is a a former Catholic, he said, in the Catholic Church, the people confess to their priest. But in your church, he said, the priest confesses to the people. And that's very different. And he really liked that about our church. This morning, we're just looking at four verses. And uh, so it's not going to take a particularly long time. But I do want to give you a a little background to these four verses because I don't want you to feel that we just pulled them out of this wonderful letter. 
that Paul writes to Christians in Rome in the first century. Paul begins this letter by making this observation about the world. And that is that everyone is unacceptable to God without excuse. Those that have never heard about Jesus Christ, who have never heard about the Old Testament prophets, the law, but also those who grew up in the church and had uh, the scriptures, they're without excuse as well, unacceptable by their own works. None are righteous, no, not one. And the, and the summary statement for the opening three chapters of Romans is this, for all of sin, short of the glory of God. And then he turns in chapter 4 and says, but we are justified in Christ by faith. What he, what he means by that is we have been made acceptable. We were once unacceptable because of our sin, but we have been made acceptable uh, to God uh, through uh, two uh, parts of the gospel. And sometimes we forget that the gospel has two important realities. We tend to know one of them and often give it when someone says, what's the, how do you know you're saved? How do you know you're a a follower of Jesus? How do you know you're a Christian? We typically talk about, I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven because Jesus Christ died on a cross for me. Jesus Christ gave up his life in my stead, in my place. Therefore, I'm forgiven. And that's true, but it is only half the gospel. We are not made acceptable to God simply by the death of Jesus. We are forgiven our sins because of the work of Christ on the cross. But we are made acceptable to God because we have the righteousness of Christ. The right works, the good works of Christ have been accounted or the biblical word is imputed to our account so that The scriptures teach us that when the father in heaven sees you, he sees his son. I don't mean that in the sense of Christ is imprinted over you and therefore can't see you. He sees you, but when he looks at your record of all the things that are accounted to you as achievements are all the works of Christ. And that's why Jesus didn't show up here at the age of 33 and jump on a cross. He lived the life we could not live. That's why we were unacceptable. But he also died the death we could not die. And that forgave our sins. So we are the forgiven and the righteousness of God. That's how he sees us. That's how we're made right. That's what chapters 4 and 5 of Romans are all about. And then Paul's concerned that if you begin to hear this gospel of God doing all of this work, regardless of your achievements, regardless of your works, you might think that that's a future reality without a present implication, without a, a present assurance, without a present change. And so he begins talking about his own personal struggle with continuing sin in his life. He says in chapter 6, I do that which I do not want to do. It's not me, it's sin in me. It's not who I am, 
but I still struggle in this life with sin until Christ returns. He wants us to know that, and so he writes two chapters about how to find victory over our continuing struggle with sin in this life that doesn't change our identity, that we are forgiven and righteous. And he does that in chapter 6 and 7. So when he begins chapter 8, he begins with this statement. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He just spoke to us in chapter 6 and 7 about our ongoing struggle with sin. And we might conclude from that, well, then there's no hope. So Paul quickly tells us, but there's no condemnation. There's a struggle, but no condemnation from God. That's verse 1. He brackets that statement. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus with this statement at the end of chapter 8. That neither... Life or death, nor principalities or angels, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He brackets verses 14 and 17 with that reality so that we can have this conversation now about how he makes us sons. How he makes us his children of God. That is, we go from being slaves to sin to sons of God through adoption. And so with that in mind, that's what we're going to look at this morning. That the reality that we experience in the church. And if you're new to the church, this is the first time you've been in the church in a while... This is the unvarnished reality of what we see and what we hope to see in the church. And that is that the church, people that are sitting around you right now, are filled with slaves and former slaves and continuing people who struggle with going back into slaves. Paul writes... For you did not receive the spirit of slavery. That presupposes what? That we were once slaves. It presupposes that humanity was once defined and humanity is still defined by a spiritual slavery. Let me give you the backdrop to Romans chapter 8 verse 15 about this slavery. Don't think of the American experience of slavery. That would have been very rare in the Roman Empire. Chattel slavery where somebody enslaves you for a lifetime or generational slavery. In the ancient world, uh, slavery was something uh, that you uh, entered into in order to pay off debts that you owed. And if your debt was so large, you were not just committing yourself, but you were often committing your entire family and your children's children and your children's children's children if the debt was large enough. And that was the idea that Paul is addressing here 
about slavery. He's trying to compare that first century idea of slavery with a kind of spiritual slavery. And the way that Paul puts it is a spirit of slavery. That is a way of thinking, a way of seeing, a way of living in regards to how you see yourself. The identity that you live under is a kind of spiritual version of the physical ancient slavery in order to pay off debts that you had accrued. And then he goes on in verse 15. He doesn't just say that we have a spirit of slavery, but we have the temptation, we have the potential to fall back into fear. Imagine the kind of fear that slaves had. Fear of a master who would be a horrible taskmaster, one who had the control of his future and the future of his children, future of his children's children. That is, until the debt is paid off, you owe this person. Imagine the fears that you would have about where your next meal or, or where you were going to live were all at the mercy of another. Fear can be a terrible taskmaster. One of the things that, that I have noticed about our uh, denomination is that often we make, when we do make poor decisions, we make them out of fear. That is, we're, we came from a period of time where liberalism was impacting the church all over America 50 years ago. And so whenever uh, someone makes a proposal that sounds progressive, often the argument is the slippery slope. Because the fear is still with us 50 years later that we're going to fall into liberalism. So you're not making a decision based on truth, what is true, good, and beautiful. You're making a decision of what you don't want to become. We see that in parents who are so afraid of losing their children or, or exposing their children and, and, and they do things that, or they prevent things that happen so that their children don't fall into. And yet, we still continue to hear children ODing on heroin. We still find children who get into immoral relationships and cause a wreck in their lives. You see, we have to be thinking about what is true and beautiful and good, which is a positive thing, rather than I'm reacting against that which is negative. Fear has a way of gripping our hearts and preventing us from enjoying the goodness of God's creation simply because we're afraid of it. And we're afraid of the fall and how the fall has impacted this world we live What are your fears? What are you afraid of? Do you have any? It's not hard to begin to think about the things that you're afraid of because one way to know what your fears are is to have them threatened. What is it that if you're, if you don't act or if you, you don't engage, you're afraid it's going to be lost? That's what we are fearful of. The church is filled with people who are enslaved to their fears. We want to be a place where we see slaves become free. 
We want to be a place where, where people who have become addicted find freedom from the addiction. We want to be a place where, where people who are greedy become generous givers. We want to be a place where broken relationships are mended and healed rather than go on. We want to be a place where people who were once enslaved now become free. Because Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Do you hear that? You are free for freedom's sake. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. But we're not just a church filled with slaves, are we? We are a church filled with sons. It's a change in status. God has made us sons. He says in verse 14, For you who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Led by the Spirit is Paul's way of saying someone who's a follower of Jesus, someone who's a Christian, someone who has been converted. He did not merely set us free. And that would have been enough. If God had taken slaves and set them free, we would still be grateful because we were once in bondage. But he does more than that. He makes us sons. That is an incredibly powerful thing when you begin to think that the God of the universe that we rebelled against, rather than punishing us, made us sons. So much so that when God sees you, he says to himself, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And you say, that's an impossibility because of what I've done till now. The only way he can say that is not because he's looking at what you have done. He can say that because he's looking at what his son, Jesus Christ, has done that has been accredited, counted toward your account. So no matter what you have done before you came in this room and maybe why you've been in this room, our God in our heaven looks at you and he likes you. He doesn't just tolerate you. Oh, there's so-and-so again. They keep showing up at church. He loves you. And because he loves you, you're his son. Now, a quick word to the women and the young girls who are in this room. Many people have used this passage and passages like it to say, either, girls, told you, the Bible is misogynistic, it doesn't like women, the other side has looked at, see women, we're above you, God created man, and then woman comes along because man's not complete. Both sides. I want you to know how radical what Paul is saying here. Paul is not saying, men, God has made you sons, and women, well, we don't know what he made you. I hope you do okay. God is giving you an incredible compliment. In the first century, women in the Roman Empire could not be citizens. They could not be heirs. They could not receive the wealth of their husbands. 
Can you imagine in the first century, you get this letter and you get to chapter eight, you've been cooking along, you understand you once were enslaved to sin, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift is eternal life. Oh, he's talking about my current struggle. I understand all this. I appreciate it. There's no condemnation for those in Christ. I love all this. And then he says, he's made you a son. And women of the 21st century read the 21st century into that verse and think, Paul left us out. Paul did not leave you out. He's paying you an incredible compliment because he's saying you're a son, an heir, something women could not be in the first century. He's equating you with the men. Don't, don't let men put you in a place that God does not have you. Now, there's, there are gifts and responsibilities and organization to his church that he imposes. But beyond that, please understand that God sees neither male nor female, nor black or white, nor Jew or Greek, just sons, heirs of the wealth of God. God doesn't just own a cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the thousand hills too. And he says, it's yours. What I have, I give to you. I think that's important, ladies, because too often you are pictured either in how you feel or someone actually telling you that somehow you're a second class citizen in the church. There is only one class of human beings in the church. Sons. Heirs of God. But how does he do that? We weren't born of God. We were adopted. And that's different. Verse 15, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Jews had absolutely no understanding or practice of adoption. It was a Roman and Greek custom. It was unique in the Roman culture. It's something that Paul could write about. And they would understand that the wealthy only would adopt men, adult males, when they didn't have heirs to become the heir. That is, there were no children adopted. No cute little babies, just adult males were adopted by childless, heirless, wealthy Romans. This is the backdrop of this idea of adoption. One of the responsibilities of the adoptor was to pay all of the debts. That is, the adoptee could not come into the relationship with debts. He had to pay them off. It was the requirement for adoption. Secondly, the son didn't get a letter saying, when I die, a lawyer is going to come visit your house, knock on the door and say, you've won the lottery. Rich so-and-so left you his kingdom. Here it is. No, you got out of your house and moved into his house and became an heir. You had all the rights and responsibilities and privileges of being the son of the wealthy man. That's the context of the gospel. 
God did not forgive your debts to him. He paid them. It cost him the life of his own son, the eternal Jesus Christ. Then he changed your legal status from slave to son. And the Holy Spirit now bears testimony to you that that happened by continuing to work in you, to conform you, to conform me into the image of Christ. That's what he's doing in us. You want assurance of salvation? Look what God's doing. Obviously not all the time, but you look back over the history and look what God is doing. He exposes our fears and he replaces them with freedom. One last and then we'll go to the Lord's Supper. And I think this is an important part that often isn't brought out of this passage. Not only is the church filled with slaves, not only is the church filled with sons through adoption, the church is filled with siblings. Do you see that? Verse 16, we are the children of God, plural. That means you are a son, but we are all brothers and sisters. God sees us as his family. We weren't just brought in and moved into his slave quarters, we were moved into the big house together as a family. Good families, you grew up in a good family, great. Thank God. But your family, as good as it is, is just an appetizer. It's one of those little itty-bitty shrimps with cocktail sauce. That's all your family is for the family of God. That's the main meal. Those of you who grew up in dysfunctional families, bad families, families that didn't work, you're not an appetizer. That wasn't an appetizer. It was a longing. A longing that can only be filled by the family of God. You know, when I was growing up, I thought that, I wonder what it would be like to have a good family. So when I was uh, 21 years old, I began interviewing spouse, potential spouses. And when I interviewed uh, uh, 10 women in six weeks, of course, they had no idea. That's a lie. They knew. But I, I was trying to ferret out two things. Did you, have, did you have an active relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? That's very, very, very important to be together going in the same direction. And then secondly, I figured in a marriage, somebody had to have a picture of what a family was supposed to be like. And so I was looking for someone that came from a good, what I considered normal or ideal family. And that's what I got. You know, that that's who Kathy is. She had to operate with only half of a picture, her half. My, my uh, uh, kids and their spouses are amazing. Have a wonderful relationship with them and my grandkids. So I've gotten the appetizer now. But it's still that little three-inch piece of shrimp. We are siblings. If God is our heavenly father, then we are brothers and sisters The longer I am here, the more I appreciate the family of EP.
Do you know how amazing you are? You might think you're not all that amazing. But from this perspective, you're incredible. You are my family. All the crazy uncles and weird aunts, cousins, you're all family. Now, you could say the same thing about me. But sometimes we get very myopic about our family, don't we? We call it the, the, the nuclear family. And we don't even recognize that we've got family that doesn't even go here. In our community, there are beautiful churches that are preaching the gospel, and we have brothers and sisters in those churches. They're not our competition. We are not trying to outdo them. We want them to be blessed and filled just as we want to be blessed and filled. We want them to be renewed just as we want to be renewed. But you know what? I bet you didn't know that in the liberal churches in our community, there are brothers and sisters too. Sometimes we complain and and put them down and don't even realize that we've got brothers and sisters there too. And that includes the Catholic Church and so many other churches in our community As long as our Heavenly Father has adopted them, they're our brothers and sisters, they're family. And that means we have responsibility to our family. Let me give you some quick application and then we'll be done. Do you still struggle with the idea that you are God's child? If you do, just ask God to help you truly receive that truth. And live out of that new identity. Nobody thinks that's a decision. Nobody thinks you're going to flip a coin and all of a sudden you're going to live out of that identity. It's got to sink all the way in and that takes time. We know that. But it begins by you wanting it. Secondly, what one step can you take this week to be a family member to someone else in the church? And I don't mean just in this room. What one thing can you do for a family member. Then third, invite someone that you see in this room over to your house or out to lunch just simply to get to know them, particularly someone you don't know. This is a big church. It's very easy to come in here and just say, well, there's no way to know so-and-so. Well, take them to lunch. Ask them their story. Tell them your story. We're going to be doing this for eternity. We might as well start now. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the meal that you're about to give us. That reminds us that we are one. That we're one family. That you have adopted us. You have rescued us. You have freed us from being slaves to being sons. You have given us the rich inheritance of Jesus Christ to be our own record. The wealth of heaven is ours. And I pray, Heavenly Father, as we celebrate together, that you remind us of the depth and breadth and height of your love for us. And that we might be assured that neither death nor life nor principalities nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything can separate us from your love in Christ Jesus. We pray. Amen.